Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I, I think the positive is it's one of the isms. You talk about disabledism, racism, sexism. I feel like when someone actually engages with a disabled person, some of the misconceptions drop away maybe a bit quicker than with the other isms. I don't know, you know, the listeners might have other experiences, but I, I felt that it does, those prejudices drop away quite quickly once someone interacts and sees you as a person and in my case doesn't see the wheelchair. But I think for those that are not as, um, you know, having disabled friends or involved or, you know, coming into contact with disabled people, the perception definitely is around uh, pity and sympathy that because you're in the chair and you have something that's not, you know, as known or as, as typical must mean that life is awful and, you know, um, things must be terrible. So I think there's a lot of, yeah, a lot, a lot of pity and sympathy that people um, maybe presume. Um, I think sometimes people have a view around intelligence and intellectual capability. So to see that because you're sat down on in a chair on wheels, that then maybe cognitively or emotionally you're not going to be as capable. And of course, when we talk about disability, it's a wide spectrum, and that's something that we'll maybe come on to a bit later in terms of, you know, with the job at the charity in London and doing the things I've done self-employed since I've embraced beyond what it is to be disabled in the way I am, but to understand what it is to be deaf or blind and other, you know, different uh, conditions. So, but yeah, for, for the misconceptions people have with me, then there's definitely a lot around whether there's a lack of language, let alone um, intellectual capability. But of course, once they start talking to me, that, that does fall away quite quickly. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello 
Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Martin, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. So I actually came across your story uh, because you had sent me an email and uh, I was immediately intrigued by a number of different things. One being that you just sold a company to Airbnb, but more than that, the story in general was fascinating to me. So uh, before we get into all that, I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living and what impact did what your parents uh, did for a living end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Sure. So um, my dad has been involved in financial services and insurance. And I can remember from a long time ago that his general recommendation was not to go into that world. I think he found that he was good at it and it's paid the bills, but um, yeah, there sort of would be more out there for his son and for me to get stuck into. So I definitely remember those childhood conversations really clearly even to this day. Um, And then my mum 
when I was you know, sort of first born and, and a young child, she was a stay-at-home mum. And then um, she got involved with a local leisure centre, um, sort of working in the cafe part-time. And then she actually became a lifeguard and then a swimming teacher. So I think that's inspired me a lot that once you find something that you enjoy and you're good at and you have that connection with people that you click with, um, yeah, she sort of went on to to spend 20 years now at this local leisure centre having a lot of good fun, teaching kids to swim and having a real community feel there as well. Mm -hmm. And how did that influence your choices? I mean, did uh, you make career choices? I mean, obviously from your dad, that seems pretty clear that you would make choice not to do anything that you hated. And from your mom, I'm curious what impact that had on the choices that you've made. Yeah, I mean, the the big defining moment with my career is I sort of went to university. Um, I did a degree in economics, master's in marketing. I was all kind of gearing up to go off into some sort of financial job, which again, you know, kind of at that point would have been very similar to my dad's career choices as well. Um, But uh, partly for for the listeners to to know, I'm in a wheelchair. I have something called spinal muscular atrophy, which means that physically I'm really limited in the things I can do. So I have to rely on electric wheelchair, on personal care support, on adapted vehicles and public transport. And, you know, buildings have to be all sort of accessible for the wheelchair. And I think... um, University was a big step getting used to sort of not having my mum and dad help with my care needs and, you know, sort of that whole part of my life. And that was a big founding moment for me to sort of spread my wings and go and get drunk till the early hours of the next morning with my friends and, you know, have other paid carers that would sort of assist me drunk often as well from their side um, to to get into bed. So, yeah, sort of having gone through uni, I think um, I was looking for the job market. And, you know, I don't want to say that there was lots of discrimination. I think some people were wary of my ability to do a full-time job with a disability. But I think also I maybe had a fear and a lack of confidence as well at the time about how that might play out. Um, So in the end, I I sort of looked for a more comfortable stepping stone by getting a job at a disability charity. Um, And it wasn't something I'd ever looked to do in all of my childhood and university years, both sort of socially and with the academic achievements I'd got. But it just felt that if I could get the sort of you know foot on the career ladder start earning some money get a bit of learning and development get used to a full-time job then I could sort of maybe look to even go back to some of the financial services stuff Um, and I think that definitely there was a lot of pragmatism that I got from my mum I know that um, for her bringing me up and my sister who isn't disabled the job that she got at the local leisure centre really fit around her life and her lifestyle. So um, I think a lot of pragmatism came from her. Um, But also I think that sort of uh, general zest for being with people and helping people um, came came from my mum and the sort of reflected in the job that she does as a local community person as well. How old were you when, um, was this a disability where you were born with, or is it something that took place over the course of your life? And and how did it impact your early sort of childhood and and that part of your life? Yeah, so it's it's a genetic condition. Um, So I think in the UK, 
there's like two and a half thousand people living with the condition. So it's a pretty rare uh, genetic disability. Um, I guess, you know, in terms of how it affected the early childhood, I don't have loads of memories of feeling disabled. Um, when I went to like the, the nursery, we call it in England, like the kindergarten, um, you know, I, all of the, the people around me weren't in a wheelchair. So I went to a sort of inclusive nursery and the same with the primary school. But I know in later life that mum and dad had to do quite a lot of um, sort of speaking to the teachers and getting funding um, that enabled me to have an assistant um, to help me through my day. So I guess in the early years, my mum and dad bared the brunt of any of the societal barriers and some of the prejudices that did undoubtedly go on about sort of how people viewed disabled people in education and in society. Um, but for me, I mean, up to the age of 11, I don't remember feeling that different. Um, I used to play uh, soccer or football with my uh, school friends and go down the park after school and they'd all be running around and I'd be cruising in my wheelchair, which had um, quite a good sort of top speed on it. Even though I was quite young, I was driving this pretty heavy bit of machinery around and I was able to sort of uh, manipulate the ball and, you know, kind of get stuck in and play play soccer with them. So, yeah, for overall, the early years were actually very happy and very included, but very much thanks to my mum and dad fighting the battles without me really knowing about it. So you mentioned that uh, you didn't feel that way, uh, you know, disabled until age 11. So I'm curious what happened at age 11 that changed how you felt about this. Sure. So in the UK, um, I don't know how it is over in the US, but we changed schools at the age of 11. Um, so I, you know, the, the idea would have been I'd have gone from this local village school in Cambridgeshire. So I grew up about half an hour from Cambridge itself. Um, and then, yeah, basically, it sort of, I would have gone to the local secondary school two miles away and carried on being with all my friends and furthering my education into to the sort of teen years and beyond. But the local secondary school wasn't wheelchair accessible. So again, I've you know I remember hearing some bits about it when I was ten or eleven, but more in later life I've heard the stories that there were lots of meetings with the the head teacher and the local authorities, and yeah, just looking at kind of how can they facilitate me being at a school that had really bad wheelchair access and wouldn't have had some of the other. Um, facilities that I might have benefited from, you know, like um, a swimming pool with a hoist or other bits and bobs that the the school felt I should have but they couldn't um, provide. So, yeah, in the end, I had to go to the school about 20 minutes, half an hour on a good day, um, and it involved a a mini bus with a, a tail lift on it going around this sort of part of the, the county um, and picking up those people with disabilities like myself and then taking us to this other school that was more uh, geared up and, and inclusive. And obviously that was gut-wrenching, you know, to have to leave behind all my friends. There was one class per year. It was a small village. So we were all very close and we all knew each other or everyone in our years and even just above and below and so yeah it was really really sad to 
to not be able to hang out with them as much and not only not be able to hang out with them as much but have to go on this quite long journey for an 11 year old at least um, and, and be on a, a bus with disabled people and I wasn't as I mentioned before I was in a very mainstream sort of um, education situation but I was I always joke now that I was the only disabled in the village because it really was no one else had a disability in my whole circle so it actually took a bit of um, learning and getting used to what other disabled people were like and that what their challenges were and sort of working out how that fitted in with my identity because I'd not really identified as being disabled as I mentioned to you earlier so there was a lot of interesting dynamics just being on that bus and sort of getting used to that world um, and then of course once I got to the school um, it, you know that there was a lot more support and a lot more wheelchair access, a lot more facilities. But I had to start out from scratch and make new new friends in my classes, and that that was pretty um, scary as well. And I, I really had a, a lot of anxiety at the time, and I, I've always had a weaker stomach when I get nervous, uh, without being too graphic. But I used to you know literally be physically sick some mornings because of the nerves. That I was experienced with all these changes at the time. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm curious what the impact of your disability has been on um, your social relationships, like with friends, with you know potential romantic partners. I'm just curious, like w- what's been the impact of it? What was it like when you were younger, and how has it changed throughout the course of your life? And how has your own sort of internal story about this impacted those relationships? Yeah, I suppose the. The teen years were tricky, but really the way I think they're tricky for every teenager, just the the hormones and the working out who you are and what you want to do as a general point of view, almost separate to the disability. I think that was was a difficult time. But in terms of friendships, I mean, from nursery to primary to secondary school and then later on to university and then into the workplace as well, you know, I've always, I mean, I've been, a, I've always been quite an outgoing, happy-go-lucky person. I think that does play a big factor. I think if you're, you know, in a wheelchair and you're more shy and introverted, there's an extra barrier to try and overcome. So I guess I have a bit of luck that I've been, you know, given that personality type of being quite optimistic and I'll just talk to anybody um, but yeah in the end I've, I've always made good friends and they've always just included me as one of the gang and I've never felt that they saw me any differently to the others that weren't disabled. I think the, the biggest barrier and I talk quite a lot about barriers in my work and my writing we talk about the social model of disability mm-hmm. and that's where you look at the barriers of the environment the barriers of attitudes and the barriers of procedures and processes and so within the friendship group the attitude was fine but whenever we wanted to go out and you know watch a film or go to a bar in the later years or whatever it might have been there was always this limitation with what we could do because, you know, the world's getting better, but there is still quite a lot of the world that is not really geared up for wheelchair users and for disabled people with other types of disabilities as well. Um, So I would say that the biggest barrier 
has always been and remains to be finding the the establishment that you want to go to for a leisure pursuit um, that that is open and adapted and suitable for someone in a wheelchair. So yeah, I definitely think that that's been the biggest barrier in terms of identity. I think that despite being a secondary school and being around other disabled people, um, I used to play wheelchair hockey at lunchtime. So there are a lot of fond memories of being with some of the other guys in wheelchairs, even though a lot of the people in my actual classes weren't with a disability. We had this uh, special unit where there was the physios and the assistants and you could get help with, you know, eating a lunch or going to the toilet and things that, you know, needed a bit more help with. So I did strike up good friendships with other disabled people and we really bonded over sport and playing wheelchair hockey. And I, I think a big part of that for me was how at primary school I played football but I was at a big disadvantage because I was in the wheelchair and trying to you know bounce the the ball around as best I could with the wheelchair whereas playing hockey I had a lot more control over what I did with the ball because I had better upper body movement then than I maybe do now because my condition does sort of deteriorate a little bit over time um, but also everyone else playing wheelchair hockey was in the same position so it was more of an equal sport and I, I really got a lot of joy out of playing that every lunchtime but I don't think any of those friendships and interaction with disabled people maybe prompted me to look at my self-identity and image around disability. I think that more happened at university. Um, I suppose the big prompt of why that would be the case was although I had assistance at school, uh, it wasn't till university that the carers I had around me had to help me with more things like showering and going to the toilet and basically very full-on personal care and helping me turn over it night time because I thought I need to have assistance to roll over in the night a couple of times because I can't do that myself and so yeah not relying on my mum and dad to do those more personal things was really another difficult step and I think in being faced with these strangers that had also never done care before they were obviously scared of what was involved I was scared what was involved um, and I think that really started to hit home that my life is or was and is quite different from the average person. I suppose that did have a, a consequential um, self-analysis of what it actually meant to, to have spinal muscular atrophy, which is a, the name of the disability, um, and to use the wheelchair and all the all the rest of it. It definitely had a, a light shone on it at university for sure. Mm. What um, misperceptions do you think that people have about people like you and disabled people in general? I, I think the positive is it's one of the isms you know, talk about disabledism, racism, sexism. I feel like when someone actually engages with a disabled person, some of the misconceptions drop away maybe a bit quicker than with the other isms. I don't know, you know the listeners might have other experiences, but I, I felt that it does those prejudices drop away quite quickly once someone interacts and sees you as a person and in my case doesn't see the wheelchair but I think for those that are not as um, 
you know, having disabled friends or involved or, you know, coming into contact with disabled people. The perception definitely is around uh, pity and sympathy that because you're in the chair and you have something that's not, you know, as known or as, as typical must mean that life is awful and, you know, um, things must be terrible. So I think there's a lot of, yeah, a lot, a lot of pity and sympathy that people um, maybe presume. Um, I think sometimes people have a view around intelligence and intellectual capability. So to see that because you're sat down on in a chair on wheels, that then maybe cognitively or emotionally you're not going to be as capable. And of course, when we talk about disability, it's a wide spectrum, and that's something that we'll maybe come on to a bit later in terms of, you know, with the job at the charity in London and doing the things I've done self-employed since I've embraced beyond what it is to be disabled in the way I am, but to understand what it is to be deaf or blind and other, you know, different uh, conditions. So, but yeah, for, for the misconceptions people have with me, then there's definitely a lot around whether there's a lack of language, let alone um, intellectual capability. But of course, once they start talking to me, that that does fall away quite quickly. Um, and a, a humorous level and vibe is around sexual <laughs> interactions that the amount of I think in the daytime and maybe it's more of a British thing I don't know but us Brits were quite cautious and you know we don't want to be too intrusive to people so I think in the daytime people are more scared to ask why I'm in the chair and what it involves and they'd rather just sort of steer a bit clear and avoid any potential awkwardness but as soon as you give a pint of beer or a wine or a spirit to someone, they suddenly overcome the inhibitions and decide that actually it's perfectly normal to ask a stranger who's in a wheelchair in a nightclub or a bar um, whether they're able to have sex. And that that certainly is an icebreaker um, when I've been out, you know, sort of boozing and cruising on the streets of London that total strangers suddenly feel comfortable enough to ask those kind of questions so yeah there's certainly some quite comical moments having life of a disability as well uh, yeah there's something you said earlier in our conversation about barriers um and you mentioned three things in spe- uh, particular you said environment attitude and processes and procedures and I'm, I'm curious if you could expand on on you know what those are and how they relate to barriers sure so the the environmental barriers are when you know engaging with your house or vehicle public transport or buildings that they there aren't disabling barriers so a lot the the reason it's certainly in britain that we say disabled people more than people with disabilities or handicaps or other terms is that the disability movement go by this thing called the social model of disability, which is all about these three barriers that we're talking about now. And in the end, it's the barriers that disable the person. So of course I am a person first and foremost, which is why some people say people with a disability. But the argument is that if we reduce the barriers or knock down all of these barriers, then it's not disabled people, it's just people. And so the best example I can give on the environmental side is that if I go to a a building, maybe go to a a concert or something like that, see my favourite band, 
then if there are steps to get in the door, then I am disabled. But if there is a ramp or level access or an elevator, then I'm totally enabled. Does, does that make sense mm-hmm. for that example? Yeah, absolutely. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Boy. And then so we have attitudes if a person has the misconceptions that we just talked about, that disables me because it's very difficult to strike up friendships or relationships or you know get a job, whatever else it might be, if people's attitudes are 
presuming something about you that isn't to be true. So that's also disabling. And then with the processes, the best example is the the train, uh, the, the National Rail in, in Britain, from my experiences, is around we have to call at least 24 hours before to have the ramp brought to the train from an assistant that works at every station that you're visiting. So the difficulty with that process is sometimes you may not know that you're going to go on a train the next day. You might just wake up one morning and think, hey, I'm just going to go, you know, uh, like I'm back out in uh, Cambridgeshire now. I might say, hey, I'm going to go to London and just spend a day in London tomorrow. But I can't do that because I have to let them know at least the day before. And the other thing is that when you're going somewhere, maybe for a, a meeting, whether it be social or for work, you don't always know what time you're going to come back. But when you actually book the assistance, they need to know what train you're getting and you know, exactly sort of when you'll be returning as well. And any stops in the middle if you're going somewhere a bit further. And I've had some yeah, terrible experiences over the years. The, the, the big sort of famous one, I actually um, got asked to speak on BBC One or BBC Breakfast to raise awareness about this was how I was coming back from university to visit my family. And um, we had to stop off about halfway to change trains. And um, and then I think we got to the final destination, actually. And the person that was meant to bring the ramp didn't come, even though I had done the procedure of phoning in advance. And basically it resulted with my girlfriend at the time getting off the train, going to look for someone to bring the ramp to get me off. And the train, the train doors closed. And then I was just firing off down the track to the wrong destination on my own. And I think back in, because this was sort of 2003, I can't remember if I had my mobile phone on me then or not, but it resulted in all sorts of difficulties of trying to get me off the train at the next accessible station, coming back on the, the train afterwards. And I think I got home or back to the original destination station two hours late, all because of this mix up with the ramp. So yeah, the, the procedure, is is as disabling as are the perceptions and as are the built-up environment as well. Mm -hmm. So, talk me from walking through, you know, uh, working at the nonprofit to getting to the you know work that you're doing today and uh, selling a company. Yeah, it's been a it's been a cool journey, but um, not always sort of the, the absolute highs that, you know, the, the highlight reel sounds very impressive, but obviously there's been all the, the, the kind of doubts and the, the worries of am I on the right route and are we doing well enough for the for the community that we serve and so yeah, there's obviously been a roller coaster through that period um, so as I mentioned my first job was at the not-for-profit called Scope and I started out in the human resources department again like I mentioned earlier not because I was destined and you know always wishing to, to work in the HR department but I think um, there was an advert in a paper and it was saying that this not-for-profit were um, trying to get more disabled people into work and so while the role wasn't the big pull factor it was that they were really looking to fill um, we, we don't have quotas 
from the government for disabled workers that there's not a legal enforcement for companies, but I guess um, a not-for-profit who exists to make the world more accessible for disabled people. They felt that about 20% of their workforce should have some kind of disability, and that's reflected in the fact that around 20% of society has some sort of disability as well. So they were on this big recruitment drive to get more disabled people there. So I I wrote the application, I got called for interview, I got called for a second interview. I wasn't nervous because I knew that they were pretty clued up with what it meant to, to have a disability. And although I mean, every disability is different, they would never know my exact needs and my exact solutions in the workplace. I knew that they would be very communicative and wanting to work with me you know, to make my, my time there a success. Um, and at that time, I was living back home with my parents. So I did the four years at Coventry University and then came back to Cambridgeshire for a year, did the work at Scope that happened to have an office quite locally and then decided that I really wanted to spread my wings again. So after a few months of getting my, my sort of feet under the table and learning the ropes, I then started to go on a couple of training courses in their London head office. And then I suppose one thing led to another where the, the idea of living and working in London was a lifelong dream. So that was still in, in full effect in the back of my mind. And then rather than changing jobs and having the stress of going to other interviews or new employment, I was able to apply for a new job internally and it was still in the HR team as well. Um, so that worked out really well that I was able to make that transition between the two similar roles, but from Cambridgeshire to London. The the fun then began that, well, so when I turned 18, I got um, like a budget from the local government to pay for my care support. So when I was in Coventry University, Coventry is near to Birmingham, which is in the Midlands. So anyone that doesn't quite know the geography of, of England, that's the, the lay of the land. Um, so when I was there, the funding still came from Cambridge because I was still registered there, just obviously being a student in Coventry. Um, but when I moved to London, I had to completely move residency. And that meant that I had to get the funding for my care support from the London borough rather than sort of just keep the money from the local Cambridgeshire council. And that was really difficult because... In fact, it was prior to the crash, but since we had the big financial crash in 2008, um, austerity has hit a lot of public spending. And you know, it, it makes sense that the crash caused a lot of knock-on consequences and everyone has had to tighten their belts and struggle. But I think it has hit disabled people and other um, so some minority groups, but particularly those that have more connection with poverty as well. Um, there's been a lot of difficulties because of the crash. And also, if you think you rely on the government for the, the care support and buying the wheelchair, and I, I know in America, some of the system is a bit different to the UK, but broadly, the things that you need to live independently 
tend to come from the government in a more developed world and then obviously by working you're still able to earn enough of an income to get your own house and buy your own food and go on your own holidays and have a a good you know typical life but it's unlikely that you're going to make so much money particularly when you're just starting out like everybody else that would also cover the cost of all those equipment and carers um, so moving to London prior to the crash, they were still trying to give menial budgets. And the basic effect of not having enough budget is that I can't pay the person that's with me to help me cook and clean and have a shower and go to the toilet. So it would have been very difficult, if not impossible, to have stayed in London. But luckily, I got some advocacy, group, advocacy groups and general you know, help and support from even from the not-for-profit that I work for. And finally, I was able to get the, the budget that I needed. But that was quite a, you know, an upheaval to, to get that to work. And the other thing was housing. When I was at university, I was in the halls and they were... Um, a couple of the rooms were adapted and the kitchen was made a bit bigger, so it was more suitable for wheelchair users in particular and, and other ways for other types of disabilities. When I knew that I'd got the job in London, it was really difficult to um, find an, a house that would have the wheelchair access and the the roll-in shower so I'm able to obviously I'm not able to get over the the bigger barrier of a bath I have to use a sort of open plan wet room shower so again the the whole housing thing was pretty stressful um, so it took a few months just to settle in to London and into that job and then once I'd probably done six months in the new role there was a couple of roles in a different department in the fundraising team and I suppose having done economics and particularly having done marketing, it made more sense to not be in HR forever, but to be in a more sort of marketing role. So I worked for about a year, I think it was, doing um, the, the, the kind of thing that a lot of not-for-profits do, where they get people to give direct debits and they acquire those donors through telemarketing or street fundraising or um, you know direct mail shots, lots of different mediums to get people to, to give to the not-for-profit. So I was project managing and training the, the actual fundraisers that then went out and, and did the, the acquisition, the recruitment on the ground. And so that then gave me a lot of grounding on what the whole concept of the social model that we talked about before gave me a lot of grounding in running training sessions as well um, and traveling i had to go around all different parts of the country on a kind of road show um, every year to, to get the fundraisers prepped and trained on what they needed to to do for for this not-for-profit and then I did another role towards the end of my time that more took the services that the not-for-profit offered. And they were very far-ranging from schools to care homes to um, helplines and lots of lots of other different things. And then basically sit between the services and the fundraising team um, of how they could then sell those services to bring in the vital money that they needed. And it was around that time that I met our, our mutual friend, AJ Leon and, and Melissa Leon from Misfits. Um, I think they were starting out 
um, earlier on in their career, and they did a, a conference, a, a workshop at the Institute of Fundraising, all about the power of social media and social change and storytelling. And um, I was just blown away and inspired about what they were doing, but also the tools and the strategies that I could use uh, for myself and to start maybe looking at projects that I think would be suitable for disabled people. Um, and it was never a negative about scope, the not-for-profit. And they have definitely, since I've moved on, they've done a lot more with the sort of digital world. But I did start to feel a bit frustrated that they were more um, traditional in their approach. So from that, um, seeing AJ and Melissa at the workshop, I asked if I could meet them for a coffee. Then they helped me to start up my blog, which is martinsibby.com. And it was just really, AJ and Melissa said to me, just write about whatever it is you experience with your disability buy a flip cam, just make some video blogs as well. Don't overthink it. Don't be too, you know, perfectionism, which I think we all have that tendency. I know I would have done if they hadn't have said that to me. Um, and no one else was really blogging um, with a disability at the time. So really that sort of starting out on the side of my job um, just, just blew up and people just loved seeing me, whether I was going out in London or talking about even my work. But then when I would go on a holiday, um, well, we went to like a road trip in California and Las Vegas, so I documented that. And I think people, I guess it changed those misconceptions for some people that had had them in the first place. Um, and they didn't have to come up to someone like me and ask me. It was just there online to kind of observe and, and learn about what it is for someone to be disabled. But I think really what's grabbed me is that other disabled people that were struggling with care or housing or uni or working saw someone, I was only in my mid to late 20s at the time, and they just saw someone that was living the dream and that, that resonated. And then we sort of started to have meetups and workshops and, you know, it really created a a tsunami, I suppose, of what has then happened as a result of, of starting the blog. Mm -hmm. So how do you go from the blog to selling a company to Airbnb? Yeah, so I started my blog in 2009. I with um, Shrin, another Shrin, um, Adipali. He was a, a friend from childhood with the same condition that I've got. And on our infamous trip around uh, California and Vegas, we said that the blog's going good, but it would be great to have a magazine that had stories from other disabled people. So we co-founded Disability Horizons magazine, which is really, it's another blog. It's, it's not a print paper version. It's all online. But instead of it always being my stories, we then curated content from our friends and acquaintances and gradually the community itself um, grew. So I think in about a year or two, we went up to about 20,000 people in the community. And then we were looking at, you know, we're both from sort of business backgrounds as well. And we both wanted to leave our day jobs as much as we had good points about it. We wanted to, you know, be more autonomous, start our own things, go and travel a bit more while we were working. And I think what we th what we thought in the beginning was to copy a lot of the information 
businesses and entrepreneurs and that we could just start to create guides and webinars and workshops and just sell them to our audience. But as I mentioned with the the implications of the crash, but even just the general amount of barriers that disabled people face, it is still a lot harder to be independent and to get a good job and all the rest of it. So I think we felt that partly our audience may not all have the means to pay for all of the content that we knew that they needed and wanted. Another factor, of course, is with not-for-profits, they were providing similar stuff for free because they already fundraised for it, but we didn't want to go down the charity route. We wanted to be a business. We wanted to stand on its own feet and to you know, kind of give value directly in the marketplace rather than just have the sort of... Um, constantly filling out applications to try and get charitable funding which of course is always highly competitive and, and difficult to get hold of when particularly when you're starting out as a new outfit as well um, and so yeah we, we toyed with that that information model and then we felt what we needed to do was create a product that we would bolt into the community of the magazine so we toyed with an app that would show local accessibility to bars and restaurants and things like that. But it was really difficult to get enough funding to get the tech right, but also to get the sort of scalability of um, both the, the establishments to be involved and to get enough users, disabled users, to upload reviews and reports. And, you know, since we looked at that, there are people doing it and even Google Maps is doing it now as well. So we were in the right area, but there was a few too many barriers to entry for that business. And so in the end, we looked at the the travel model because by that point we were just we got the bug and we we were just traveling all over the place i mean in the end i've been to uh, usa a few times i've been to japan australia mexico and all around europe on road trips that we crowdfunded and you know we were having the time of our life traveling while we were creating all of this content as well so we felt that travel would be a good area to do product development because there are plenty of disabled people with um, expendable income. The, the barrier for them isn't financial to go on holiday. It's more the information of where where to go, you know, where, where the hotels are accessible, where the local sort of streets have drop curbs or braille or whatever else is necessary. So we, we started looking into really um, an accommodation website that at some point later we could bolt on tours and other things as well. And we called it the Airbnb for disabled people and the actual name of the company is Accommable. And then as we started out, we got um, some local, uh, well not local, but small businesses that had purposefully made their property very accessible, but found that not many people were coming with a disability because they didn't know about it. So they were really happy that we were coming along. We worked with tourist boards, we worked with not-for-profits in the accessible tourism space. And just to give an idea, I think in England last year, £12 million was spent 
just on um, disabled people going on an overnight stay in a in some kind of leisure way. So you can see that there is a, a market of disabled people that, that are willing and able to travel. Um, so we tried to get some startup funding and we got a little bit from the Skull Foundation. Um, AJ and Melissa were always there giving us some advice and support as well, which was really, really helpful. And then, yeah, as, as things developed, um, I think Shrin learned to code and that was where we overcame the big barrier. And this whole conversation ends up being about barriers, whether you're disabled or not. And he was able to create our beta version to really sort of showcase what we were actually banging on about with all of our presentations and conversations. So and then we got some um, angel investment of over 200,000, it was 250,000 pounds. Um, and that enabled the, the team to scale up more and get a bit more engineering clout and, you know, just get the whole thing to grow. Um, and then we, as always, with a startup, you come to a bit of a crossroads and that happened about two months ago. I've not been as involved the last year in the business because it needed a lot more product development, whereas I've always been more around the community content and the marketing. So obviously that that could have come later on once the, the product was a bit more um, set up to have had more properties in more of the world. But even so, there was about a thousand properties up to a couple of months ago. Um, and then Shrin, who was more leading on the efforts and was the CEO, um, approached Airbnb and conversations went on. And then, yeah, it was a Airbnb bought a Commonwealth about a month ago. So we were all over the news, all over BBC in England and various other networks around the world that our little startup company that two friends with a disability kind of started from a garage. Not that we actually had a garage, but it's a, the stereotypical entrepreneur story. Um, we, we sold it to the, the company that we were reading about and, and aspiring to be like for our particular community. So it was pretty cool stuff. Mm, wow. Yeah, I think the the really interesting thing uh, for me, just from having heard your whole story, is that despite so many barriers in your life, um, you've maintained this sort of level of optimism and faith in your ability to, to go out and live in, in the way that you do. And on the, the sort of flip side of that, I see people who have, you know, circumstances and barriers that are far less adverse than anything that you've had to deal with, yet they don't respond to them the same way that you've responded to yours. And I'm curious why you think that is. Yeah, I mean, we, you mentioned earlier the sort of identity and self-image of being disabled. So I suppose over time, I did have to understand that I do have limits. I do get times where I'm tired or my health suffers in the winter and I just have to understand and be realistic. So I think rather than just pushing through towards the big dreams without any thoughts or reality and limits would be a mistake. I, I've had to become very self-aware and very well planned and researched in all of my endeavors, whether to do with access or just, you know, as any business and entrepreneurial person would be. Um, interestingly, where I've got to with work is that I know that the disabled community need a lot more support and encouragement and, and even just tools and strategies in around their self-esteem, in the knowledge of how 
to cope with some of these barriers and with peer-to-peer support. And I think having been through a lot of personal development um, courses and seminars and just reading lots, and I'm always subscribed to your um, blog uh, emails that come through. And so all of those inputs have helped me to understand more of, of what I do well and what I do bad and then focus on my strengths and my passions and my enjoyment. But as of the, the turn of the year, going into January, I'm launching a personal development zone under Disability Horizons. That's the main part that I now work on. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm really sort of looking hard at everything I've done and Shrin has done and others like us to, to pass that knowledge on to disabled people to go out and get their own dreams off the ground and realise their own potential. And I think any of the listeners that you know clearly some and many won't have a connection to disability but I think a lot of those lessons are the same that it really is about the mindset no matter what is going on physically or um, economically all the other factors we have in life if we do have intention of what we want from life and what we're capable of but also know there'll be those roller coaster moments that I mentioned at the beginning that it wasn't all plain sailing and there were dark days as well but accept those for what they are then you know as my the book I wrote I called it everything is possible because I really do believe disabled or not that we can do whatever we set out to do mm. wow well, I think that makes a, a really fitting end to our conversation. So I don't want to uh, wrap by asking my uh, final question, which I know you've heard me ask before. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think it's it's trying. I think literally we're unmistakable by just getting out there and trying no matter what happens, no matter what the end result is. It's better to regret the things we did than to regret the things that we didn't. And I know we've read those types of sound bites in lots of books and, and you know podcasts, listen to them on podcasts. But I really feel overall that is truly what for me makes someone unmistakable. Hmm. Wow. Awesome. Well, uh, where can people learn more about you uh, and your work? My blog is uh, martinsibley.com. The magazine is disabilityhorizons.com, which we're also um, getting that out across the world in other languages. It's in Arabic, and we're seeing a lot of uptake and um, sort of activism coming from the launch we've done in Arabic-speaking countries, which is really exciting new chapter as well. Um, but yeah, I guess the main thing is social media, Facebook, LinkedIn. <laughs> I'm a blogger, so I'm everywhere, basically. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that, and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.